Hey everyone, welcome to The Metrospective. Tim Britton here, trying something a little different today, as Keith Law had Mets scouting director Mark Chimuda on the Keith Law Show this week. They went in-depth on the Mets draft class and more, so we're going to run that interview here for you. You can check out all episodes of the Keith Law Show on the Athletic app or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll be back with Pete McCarthy later this week for another episode of your favorite Mets podcast, The Metrospective. Hi, I'm Keith Law, and welcome to episode 17 of the Keith Law Show. I will be joined today by Mark Tremuda, the scouting director for the New York Mets, to talk about coping with a shortened draft this year and the somewhat unique draft strategy that he and the Mets have used both this year and last year in trying to get high ceiling talent even after the first round. For those of you who are subscribers to The Athletic, you can read all of my analysis of last week's MLB draft. I have posts up breaking down all 15 American League teams' drafts and all 15 National League drafts. I also did a piece on Thursday after the first night, which was after the first round and the first uh, supplemental round, analyzing each of those picks individually. So I've got something written on just about every player. I did skip a few of the senior signs who were clearly just money savers, but hopefully uh, the players you have questions about, I'll have answered those in each of those posts. I will also have a post up this week looking at which teams just drafted their new number one or new number two prospects within their own farm systems. Father's Day is coming up this Sunday. If you're still looking for a gift for the father, grandfather, or someone else in your life, I would love to recommend my own book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. Uh, it's been out since April. It has been recommended by the Boston Globe, the New York Times, Forbes, Rays Magazine, multiple other publications as a good Father's Day gift or as an essential sports read for the summer. You can get it any place you're buying books now. If you don't have an independent bookstore open near you, I recommend bookshop.org. Last I checked, they did still have copies available. You can also buy my first book, Smart Baseball, there or anywhere fine books are sold. Looking for a Father's Day gift or just missing baseball? Check out Dugout Mugs, a company started in a college baseball dugout, hence the name Dugout Mugs. Dugout Mugs turns the barrel of a baseball bat into a 12-ounce mug. The mugs are licensed by MLB, and you can get your favorite team logo laser engraved onto a birchwood baseball bat barrel mug. They're perfect for the big game to put on display or just to be the life of the party. It's a unique gift for a baseball fan. So check out Dugout Mugs. Go to dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and use promo code MLB30 for 30% off your first purchase. That's dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and code MLB30. Fill that baseball void with your very own dugout mug today. Now, it's my pleasure to be joined by Mark Tremuda. He's the scouting director for the New York Mets. Mark and I actually worked together eons ago. We were both in the Toronto Blue Jays organization. Uh, Mark's greatest hits as Mets scouting director include the drafting of Pete Alonso, the reigning National League Rookie of the Year. So Tram's been good enough to spend some time with me today to talk about the Mets draft from this year, last year, and their draft philosophy in general. So, Mark, first of all, thanks for the time. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, doing well, just like a... I told you it's been a it's been a hectic last forty eight hours with uh, the post draft stuff, but we're all hanging in there just trying to sign some players. So let's start by talking about your draft this year. And second year in a row, I've really been high on your draft. And first, let's talk just sort of big picture. Actually, 
you had six picks this year. You had the extra pick for losing Zach Wheeler as a free agent. And of course we didn't have a spring. So how did you as head of the department and the one ultimately responsible for making the selections, how did you approach the spring and then going into draft discussions leading into the actual draft itself? As soon as that happened, obviously all of us were trying to get home number one and and get home safely. And then we just basically pivoted and, and started to come up with ideas on how we wanted to do this. So we immediately, as everybody else did, I'm sure, in the, in the game, got on Zoom calls, and we, we said, how are we going to – it was everything. It was, how are we going to put the boards together? How, how are the lists going to be different? How are we going to use video more? What, what kind of data and how, how relevant is, is it going to be because there wasn't that much this year? So we had, to, we had to, even though we had months until the draft when we were shut down, we had to accelerate that because none of us had ever done it this way before. So there, we had all kinds of ideas – that's what we we brainstormed first. How do we want to do this? I mean, I even went so far as to order whiteboards for my house because you're so used, as you know, being in the draft room, <laughs> having that, that the the visual stuff in front of you with magnets or boards. So we did that, but we had to pivot really quickly and say, okay, let's let's go back to how we just had our meetings in January, and we formulated a board there without seeing the players at all in the spring because that's done beforehand. So we just tried to get as many ideas and we broke up into small groups. We had the area guys do do certain things on hitters. We had other area scouts do some projects on pitchers that we didn't even see. So everybody really was involved. We opened up the whole, our whole portal to everybody and everybody was involved in looking at just about every player that we were going to get a draft ID on. So this, in terms of a collaborative effort, this was as much as I've ever been a part of because there was so much unknown that it was important to get everybody involved at every level. So of the guys who you drafted, so as I said, you drafted six players, and I'll ask in a bit just about some of the specific players, but it looks to me like, as you did the previous year, you sort of went all in on some high-ceiling players up top, the first three picks in particular this year, and then the latter three picks, while, while quite likely prospects in your eyes, were more potentially to go under slot and potentially balance out your draft pool. So would I be right in assuming from two drafts that that is your philosophy, especially when you get to that second and third round, look for higher ceiling players who might still be on the board, even if they are potentially still expensive in draft terms. Right. And I think Brody alluded to that in one of his comments about when you're taking a talent such as a JT again, it's going to, you know, the, the investment dollars are going to be a little higher. And we did the same thing with Matt Allen last year, as you alluded to. And that, it was it, it was almost a strategy. Sometimes it's beforehand because we had got we had done it last year. So that was always an idea that hey, if the right person is there, let's let's maybe do that again. And and that's what we focused on. He was just too good of a talent we thought to pass up. We thought we thought he was a first round talent. I like being aggressive, especially in this format with the five rounds. And I liked it last year too to be aggressive and. And if you can inject three to four players in your system right at the top of your draft that everybody loves and everybody thinks is an above average fail, um, above average prospect, they have immediate value right away. And I think that uh, that can replenish a farm system in a hurry. Well, let's talk about Ginn for a second, because I remember talking to you two years ago when Ginn was in the draft out of high school. And I knew you liked the player then, but obviously high school pitching riskier. He was seen as a probable first round pick. You haven't taken a pitcher in a high school pitcher in the first round. Obviously, I've written a bit about not taking high school pitchers in the first round. But now he's a college pitcher. He's 21 or he's already 21. 
but he didn't pitch this year because he had Tommy John surgery. I don't know if you had any looks at him from the preseason. I heard I heard he was really good in the preseason, actually. Or if you were basing this primarily on track record. Right. I think uh, a little bit of both. I think he came out. We saw the we saw the very first start. I think his stuff was down a little bit, which then again led to the to the Tommy John surgery, mm-hmm. but he had such, he had such a tremendous, if you look at his numbers from his freshman year, they're just, they just jump off the page. I mean, to, to be a guy that had a 30% strikeout rate with a 70% ground ball rate with the raw stuff that he has, you know, that, that probably had he been healthy all year. He goes in the middle of the first round. Um, yeah. We, and we did have a lot of interest um, in high school, uh, but you know, somebody, you know, Dodgers took him at the end of the first round, but we've always liked him. Our area scout, Jet Butler, uh, lived in Jackson, Mississippi, went to Mississippi State. You know, we've signed Jake Mangum last year and Cole Gordon, who were from Mississippi State. So we had a lot of information on JT that made us feel comfortable making that kind of uh, investment in him and taking taking on, obviously, a little bit of a risk because of the Tommy John surgery. But our doctors t- took a look at it, and they were comfortable with doing that. So, again, it was putting all the pieces of the puzzle together and saying, yes, this was worth that investment to go ahead and take him in the second round. Now, the other two guys you took uh, early, Pete Crow Armstrong was your first round pick. And then Isaiah Green was, you took him after the second round with the compensation pick you'd gotten for losing Zach Wheeler. Both California high school kids, which means you probably got to see them this spring. And I know Crow Armstrong in particular, from talking to multiple scouts, looked really good in the early going this spring. So I don't know if you personally got a chance to see either of these guys or did, or just generally did it help that you had some looks at them this spring, whereas there were plenty of high school kids who never got their season started, or if they did, they were just barely scouted. All right. I saw, I saw, I got a chance to see Pete Crow three times this spring and he was, and I, I usually, depending on where I start, I started this year in California. So I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to get multiple looks at him before I circle back in April. And uh, so it was good to get, I got about 10 or 12 at bats with him. And he did, he, all of us, some of our cross checkers, Doug Thurman, our national guy and our West coast cross checker, Drew Toussaint, saw him early, I think maybe in Las Vegas. And then I went in right after that and Tommy Tanis followed me in and he did, he performed really well. I was, you know, if last year he only, he only participated in the area code games. And then I, I believe he went on uh, to some of the 18 U stuff after mm-hmm. he didn't play in the P- PDP, but the area code games. Yeah. I mean, it was a small sample. It was a few at bats. He didn't, he didn't particularly perform as well as he could there, but then he went on the rest of the summer and performed really well. We really liked him this spring. I think he's a guy that can touch all five tools at at five, 55, 60s, and 70s on those tools. I mean, obviously, everybody would say that he's an elite defender right now. Uh, I gave him a 70 on that grade. We think he's got a chance to be a plus hitter. The power, we think, is on the come. I, I was actually surprised this year at how much stronger I thought he was than last summer. And that really, really piqued my interest when I saw that. I mean, he can run plus. So you get a guy up the middle, premium athlete, who also I think has intangibles that that's going to help him in the long journey in the minor leagues. I saw a quote, Sean Casey, the ex big leaguer had a quote the other day that he, I think he had coached him in one of the either Under Armour or the, or the PGL American. I can't remember which he's, and he just said how well wired Pete was and, and how advanced he was in his thinking and thought process and thought he would, that would uh, help him in pro ball. He thought he was pro ready from that aspect, which as you know, the makeup sometimes is, is the hardest thing to gauge. And, you know, to hear that from an ex big leaguer who had multiple conversations with him in a dugout, that was, that was good to hear. But um, on, on Isaiah green, I saw him play twice. Uh, saw him take a, a, B, a BP for us. And I really like him. I, I think 
just like Pete Armstrong, a, a premium athlete up the middle, can stay in center field. He can touch all five tools. Uh, I think I thought it was a great value pick. Uh, Glenn Walker, our area scout, did a tremendous job with him. He he kind of rang the bell early. Drew Toussaint went in and said, hey, this is a guy we need to lock in on. And I was very, very happy to get him at pick 69. And he had, according to, I haven't seen Green, but I spoke to a couple of scouts, area guys out in Southern California, and they said Green was a bit of a late bloomer, that if you'd seen him last spring, he wasn't, he certainly wouldn't have been a second or third round talent. It looked like a kid who had some tools, but really hadn't translated them into enough present performance to justify taking him that high. And that maybe he was sort of the classic college guy. When we see a guy in high school, who's he's got ability, but really he needs to go to college, maybe get stronger, mature a little bit. And it sounds like green just came on the spring and did enough that if you guys hadn't taken him, I feel pretty confident he would have gone some point in the next round. Yeah, I, I actually thought um, leading up to our pick when we we kind of locked in on him, maybe you know, ten, fifteen picks beforehand, we're like, geez, I hope he gets to us. And I thought he was going to go earlier than that. But he's he's got you know he he's got tools, but there's an element of there's some baseball skill in there too. I don't I don't think this there, obviously there's some projection remaining with him, but I think he's a good baseball player right now. He had a good area coach. Um, you know, again, he's a guy that when you start filling in those boxes. He grades out really well, and and I was just it was just a, a really good pick there to get that type of talent because we you know I think some of the publications had a maybe ten twenty picks higher than that, and again anytime I can stay up the middle with with guys that are premium athletes it's it's definitely worth taking. Yeah, absolutely, and it seems like you've you've definitely made that a focus, understandably, uh, in especially when using high draft picks. But I'll shift back to last year now for a second. So I want to talk a little bit about that draft too, where you employed a somewhat similar strategy. You took kind of a bit of an unconventional player in the first round, and Brett Beatty, who's a corner player, probably a first baseman. I saw him play third base. I, I assume he'll probably go out for a while as a third baseman. But he was also 19 at the draft. And I know you guys have an R&D department like most teams do. And R&D guys generally don't like 19-year-old high school players. So just talk to me a little bit about Beatty as a prospect before we get into your draft philosophy as a whole last year. Sure. I think going into the draft and you, and you immediately, that's kind of the thing that jumps out is the age. So we, we've done it both ways. We took, we took in 2017, Mark Vientos, who was one of the young players in the draft. He didn't turn 18 to December, 2018. We took Simeon Woods Richardson in the second round who didn't turn 18 until September. So it, that's, and then we took uh, Jared Kelnick who was who turned 19 in July. So we kind of done it on both ends of the spectrum but again, we we felt like that Brady was so advanced with the bat, and we thought it was a combination bat of power, hit, and plate discipline. And it was again, it was just this is this is too good a talent that everybody that went in there came out saying the same thing. And when that happens, that that's a comforting feeling for a scouting director to go and get a, you know go ahead and take that kid. And had had we had a full minor league season this year, let's say he starts in the Sally League in Columbia. Well, if he does that, he's he's 20 and he's a year and a half younger. Now that doesn't guarantee success, but if he, if he does hold his own in that league, which we fully expected that he would have done, then he's a year and a half younger and he's, and he's caught up, uh, so to speak. But we, we just felt like that, that his talent could move quicker than the, than the, you know, the ordinary high school guy. So that's, that's one of the big reasons why we took him. So last year as well, and you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, you 
who had a similar strategy where you targeted a very high ceiling player uh, on day two who'd fall in, you know, presumably for for financial reasons. Teams knew what he was looking for in a signing bonus, and and he slipped in the draft. That's Matt Allen, who I had ranked as a first rounder. I think I had him as the top high school right hander in the draft class, and you managed to get him in the third round after signing a couple of other pretty high ceiling guys. I thought in the first few picks, but that was really your draft. Was your first the first four players you took constituted the bulk of the value in the draft class. And then after that, you went for players who are prospects like Jake Mangum, but they were, they were much less expensive because they were college seniors or otherwise were looking for less money. So kind of the same question again, is that, you know, do you view that as a, as a good draft strategy? Cause not a lot of teams employ that. And was Allen always a player you were focused on in last year's draft? Yeah, I think, I think if you get a guy that you, that you have a sixties or a 70 roll on and you're the rest of the draft in terms of, of the signability, then it, then it's worth it because I think he probably is at the very top of our organizational prospect list. And if you don't take him, he's not there. And it's just, it's just, we had him so highly ranked that, and Brody, you know, Brody, we got to into a situation and Matt Allen's still on the board and he looked up there and he said, he just asked flat out right after we had made the second pick, do you want to take Matt Allen? And in the split second, I said, yes. And so did everybody else. And, and then he got on the phones and we started to work that out. And I, I'm thrilled with it. I think our player development people are absolutely thrilled. You look back and all that matters is that we took Matt Allen. It doesn't, you know, nothing else. And I think I like the fact that after we took him, our area scouts did a great job and we got some value. I think Jake Mangum, all-time hits leader in the SEC, Nathan Jones in the fifth round, who was a right-handed pitcher that um, our area scout, Jeff Butler, liked a lot. So I, as we went on in those picks, we were still taking players because in essence, we had the first crack at some of the seniors. So we felt like, well, well, maybe we'll get the best of the seniors if we take the right ones, obviously. And we were still taking players that our, our area scouts thought were prospects, but that philosophy, I've always talked about that. Like how is it worth doing that to be very overly aggressive in the, in the uh, top of the draft and maybe, you know, then you're, you're limited uh, bonus pool wise. But I think I would say that we're very happy with the results to this point. Last question for you, nothing to do with baseball, but for listeners who don't know, uh, I have a very strong interest in pizza, particularly Neapolitan style, like classic Italian puffy crust on the outside style pizza. And so does Tram. We're not alone in the scouting community, but we're part of a few scouts where if we find a new pizza place we're, that we like, we're always exchanging tips. So uh, Mark, why don't you give us a couple of your favorites and we'll put you on the spot to rank them, but a couple of your favorite pizza spots from around the country. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's something I, I tell, I tell a lot of our guys, I said, Keith and I, you know, we've been friends for a long time. I said, but we probably talk more about pizza than we do about players. So <laughs> I, I'm going, I'm going crazy right now because I, one of our, our national cross checker, Doug Thurman knows that. So his, his motto is that he eats to live. And I say, I, I live to eat. And, <laughs> and, and I love, I love the Neapolitan style pizza. So, I mean, one of my favorites is in Brooklyn, uh, right where, where our Cyclones, about two blocks away from the Cyclones Stadium, Totano's mm-hmm. is one of my favorites. Um, so that one, there's one, I'm, I'm really missing the Cape Cod League this year because we enjoy that. And there's a, there's a place in uh, Dennis, Mass, called Firestarter, who I, I think I told you about and you mm-hmm. went there. That's an, that's an outstanding place as well. Um, but there's the one, the one I have not been to, I want to go to Lucali in, uh, in uh, Brooklyn as well. I haven't been to that one yet. But those two, 
and now, now I'm, I'm drawing a blank now because oh, I like and I really like Antico up in north north of Atlanta mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, th- those Neapolitan styles. It's not not as uh, prevalent here in Western New York. We're more Chicago style. So I don't eat pizza much when I'm at home at all. But I, I definitely take a look all the time at your top 55 and try to track down those places. But that's definitely something that I hunt for sure. Yeah, I've been to, I've been to Lucali. It's good. It's good. Uh, Totonos might be – they're in the same league certainly. Uh, my – right before the world ended here, um, I found out about a couple of new or newish places in Philadelphia. One's Pizzeria Bedia, which is pretty well known. It had just been kind of hard to get in because it was um, – you could make reservations and uh, it was just hard to get – the table you were they were looking a couple weeks out and now i'm just waiting to see if they reopen when they reopen because that was by acclamation all the philly papers critics were all saying this is the best pizza in the city i'm like I- I- i'll be the judge of that okay but i haven't been able to get in there so i'm hoping now maybe in the next few weeks I, mean, I don't care if i have to go in there and sit on the sidewalk if the pizza is good that's all that matters you know i i agree i got there's another one, you know, and you, know, you had your spots that you go. There's one in Durham that I love, Toro Pizza. Yeah. That's excellent downtown, downtown Durham. That's a really good one. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm missing that right now. I, I thoroughly enjoy – I don't have your palate. I don't, I'm not as sophisticated. But when it comes to pizza, that's something that you and I share a, a, definitely a, a genuine uh, like for. Yeah, it's one of the uh, comforts of being on the road. We're away from our families a lot, so it's good to have good food when we're traveling. Yeah, no doubt. I get sick of the uh, the chain restaurants, so I'm on I'm on TripAdvisor, or Yelp, or searching uh, the VPN site. To, I hunt mm. down a lot of those VPNs. Uh, Sotabello's another one out in Vegas. Uh, oh yeah, Anderson that I like. So yeah, so there's there's some really good ones, and I I, I really miss those right now. But certainly certainly the, the Cape Cod, we go there a lot. We try to get to that fire starter quite a bit. Yeah, that place uh, is good. We rent, we, we, yeah, we rent a house, and it's about a half mile from that from that place. So all of us, the group of us that rent rent the house in Dennis are are missing that for sure. My guest today has been Mark Tremuda. He's the amateur scouting director for the New York Mets. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Keith, thank you for having me. Pleasure. I'll uh, talk to you soon. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides the treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com law for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com L-A-W for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. I put out a call on Twitter on Monday afternoon saying if anyone had other questions related to last week's MLB draft, I'd try to answer a few of them on the show today. And I got 50-something of them, most of them serious, and then a non-serious one from Chris Crawford. I'm still right about Booksmart. It's not a good movie. Uh, longtime reader Testa Duda asks, will the Red Sox be making their picks soon? I mean, they were hacked, right? I was very confused by what the Red Sox did. There is no way in which uh, Nick York was a first-round talent for me. He's a high school second baseman, hasn't played shortstop, I think, in two years because of an arm injury. You are really betting on your evaluation of a hit tool to be accurate. 
for him to be worth taking in the first round. And I think if they wanted him that badly, there was a pretty good chance he would have been available their next pick in the third round. With that pick, they ended up taking Blaze Jordan, who was about a third-round talent, but is also a pretty high-risk player. There's some more reward there. There's more upside. But he needs a swing overhaul for me. There's questions about the plate discipline. And he's a high school first baseman who probably doesn't have another position. So he's really got to hit, even more than Nick York has to hit. Jordan has to find a way to hit for average and for power for that to work out. So I did not love the Red Sox draft. I think that'd be probably the fairest and and most even-handed way to say it. Aaron Gershoff asked, does the team need to hit on more than one pick to be a success this year? Seems like some teams punted, though. I don't think anybody punted. I do think you you're even though the draft is shorter, the top of the draft is still there. We didn't shorten the – what we lost was pick round six and forward. So you still should have gotten a first-round talent in the first round, and there was as much first-round talent or probably more this year than there has been in the last several drafts. So I would say teams should be looking at this draft and saying, well, we only took on average five players. Teams had anywhere between three and seven picks because of free agency or penalties for sign stealing, et cetera. But Median was five picks. If you had five picks, you should think you you could hit on two of them uh, because of the talent that was available. And again, because you were still picking from the top. So I think if you only get one pick, one successful pick out of this year, you did fine because it's always possible to get zero. But I wouldn't call it a success. Uh, Arthur Fu asked many – many people asked a similar question. If they don't play this year, how do you predict they will order the draft next year? So MLB, I believe, has the right to essentially reorder the draft. If there are no games this year, I'm still hopeful we're going to get games this year. But my guess is they would either simply adhere to the previous year's order, which is not great actually, or try to tie it to revenue and revenue sharing, which is what they've done. It's how the competitive balance picks exist in the first place. Maybe that results in some sort of weighted lottery. Um, They could weight it by both previous year's record and by where they fall in the revenue sharing scheme. But I guess the one prediction I would make is that they try to bring that revenue sharing aspect into the equation, which is not the worst idea because they are trying to – use the draft to equalize uh, or level out the playing field a little bit. Uh, Great value. Tom Cruise at Ethan Gurkha asks, how did the Astros do in the draft value-wise, despite not having multiple picks in the first and second rounds? I actually thought they did okay. I like the Alex Santos pick. I think they got a second-round talent there. Uh, And I think Tyler Brown is really interesting, even though – uh, I'm probably a little bit in the minority in terms of I think there's a chance he can work out as a starting pitcher. I just think Vanderbilt never had the need for it. And there, Vanderbilt had some valid reasons why they didn't start him, but I think he's got the size to start. I think he's got the stuff to start. I He'd also said the spring uh, – not even the spring, like just before the draft that he intended to return to school. So I was a little bit surprised that he was taken. Uh, I didn't wasn't very high on the fourth rounder, Zach Daniels, but the fifth rounder, Shea Whitcomb, I thought was a pretty interesting sleeper that he's just got to find another position. He's always performed. He's got a pretty simple swing. I think it works. Obviously, he's going to have to continue performing, but in the fifth round, a college guy who's produced and probably can at least handle second base or maybe end up a utility infielder, that seemed like pretty good value to me. So I was I on the whole, I think for not having high picks, I think they did pretty well. Matt at Ziggy Stardog asks, how many 2020 draftees will you think do you think will end up on the next iteration of your prospects list? So 
I assume that's about my top 100. In a typical year, about 12 to 15 players from a June draft will end up on my top 100 the following January. If we have a season this year, my guess is we'll see enough graduations from the top 100, meaning guys who play in the majors lose their rookie eligibility. We will see enough of those that the top 100 will look similar to – will change in a similar way than it does previous years. The exception is if we don't play this year, and so we lose basically nobody. Nobody really – nobody has too much major league time for the list. Nobody drops off the list because they stunk. So that number could be lower. However, I feel pretty comfortable saying at least six guys I can think of off the top of my head immediately slot in comfortably into a top 100. So the actual number would probably still be at least – 10 uh let's just hope that we get a season here some guys graduate from the list and then we get to add a few more so because i just think those lists are more interesting when there's organic change as opposed to me trying to change things which i don't really want to do when we don't actually have new information uh brian simpson asks uh, it's b simp and a bunch of numbers why doesn't mlb allow teams to trade their draft picks that goes back to the 80s to concerns that Low revenue teams, small market teams wouldn't want to pay exorbitant signing bonuses of like $100,000 and that they would just give away all their picks rather than paying for players. That's not going to happen now. It's ridiculous. However, it has to be collectively bargained, and neither the league nor the union has any real incentive to push for the for allowing the trading of draft picks. So it should happen, but nobody's pushing for it. There's no seat at the bargaining table, nobody sitting at the bargaining table who's pushing for trading of draft picks. It's kind of disappointing, but I also – think that that's just where we are. Kyle Bandujo asks, was this a down year for Puerto Rican talent or did MLB teams just know they could screw them as undrafted free agents as opposed to how they normally screw them with their underslot bonuses? It was actually a really bad year in Puerto Rico. I didn't have anybody even close to my top 100. I believe MLB Pipeline had one guy on their top 100 and he was below 160 on their rankings and there were only 160 players drafted. Um, and as far as I know, he wasn't drafted. So it was disappointing, but that's Puerto Rico is like a lot of states where there could be years where nobody gets drafted high from there. Typically, we see a lot of players draft from Puerto Rico later because those kids are seen to be willing to sign for less. And that's not great, but I would rather have a scenario where Puerto Rican kids at least play professional baseball than where they're not getting scouted or drafted at all. Um, there's a whole separate conversation to be had there about how bad it's been for Puerto Rican amateur players to be in the draft rather than to be treated as international free agents as they were up until about 1991 or 1992, but that's probably too long for the purposes of this podcast. I'll just try to do a couple more here real quick. Addison, SF Giants fan, 81. Biggest surprise pick? Well, that has to be Nick York in the first round to the Red Sox. Who won the draft? I don't answer that question uh, because we don't know. I can tell you who I think did well and who I think did poorly, but that's just my opinion. And to say that somebody won the draft is too much of a definitive statement for me. We are years from knowing who really did well, who actually had a great draft class. Well, I can tell you, I think that, say, the Blue Jays had the best draft class of any team this year. I think they did the best with the picks that they had. I think that's probably true in my mind, but it's just an opinion. And to say that they won the draft or anything like that, to say to give them an A grade is too definitive and it just kind of makes me uncomfortable. Coach Dwyer at H-Town Hacker, thoughts on Mason Wynn's development? Shortstop pitcher, try both. He is a shortstop. He is a position player. He throws very hard. It's not a pitcher's delivery. He's just throwing very hard, and you would have a lot of work to do, as athletic as he is, to try to get him to a delivery he could use. However, he's got electric hands at the plate, and I'm 
He's got plenty of arm to stay at short or play just about anywhere else on the diamond. So it's going to be work. He's going to be work for the Cardinals. It's going to be work for the kid. But I think there's all-star kind of upside in there if uh, if he hits. And it's the kind of high-risk, high-reward pick that I particularly liked. Someone else asked here, too. I'm not even seeing the question since I got so many from you. Ah, here it is. Bob Lutz, at Bob Lutz. Risk versus reward on the Cardinals' first three picks. I'm all in. Absolutely all in. Um yeah, they took a ton of risk. I absolutely agree with the if the sentiment is, well, the Cardinals took a lot of risk here. They did. They absolutely did. Um, I'm okay with that, especially if you're the Cardinals. You don't probably don't play much for the Cardinals if you don't have a chance to be an above average regular. They don't all turn out that way. But the Cardinals are looking for stars. Uh, and I think they're confident too that they can take lower draft picks and develop those guys into regulars, fringe regulars, bench players. They're looking for big ceiling in the draft. And with the first three guys they took, Jordan Walker, who if he hits, he's a superstar. But there's big questions about whether he's going to hit. Mason Wynn, who we just discussed, Tink Hence, Markevious Hence, goes by Tink, uh, high school pitcher, very young high school pitcher from Arkansas, also a big upside guy uh, with a good delivery, with a good arm. I'm all in on all three of those guys. And they did they took a pitchability right-hander in Ian Bedell in the fourth round, too. So I kind of I get that. Um, they took a little bit of safety, but for one, two, three, they said, that's it. We're going for huge ceiling. We recognized we could whiff, we could whiff on all three of these picks. But I love that kind of risk taking. These guys are it's not like they took guys who just don't know how to play. It's guys who need development, who need to get into a professional system and get better coaching, but who have such overwhelming physical tools that you could really see stars there if the team is patient or if the kids just turn out to be faster learners maybe than we realize. So I am absolutely all in on that strategy. I got way more questions than I could answer. Thanks to all of you who submitted them. I'm sorry I couldn't get to everyone's. And that is all for this week's show. So thank you all so much for listening. Once again, if you're looking for a last-minute Father's Day gift, may I recommend my own book, The Inside Game, which you can find on bookshop.org. Also, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic yet, and why not, there is a special offer going right now at theathletic.com slash claw. That is theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W. You can go there now and get 40% off of a subscription. Many of you have subscribed in the last two weeks to read my draft stuff. I want to tell you all, I really appreciate that. I know this is a time when many of us, myself included, are not spending money as often as we used to. Some of us are not in a position to spend a lot of money. So I see when subscriptions come through off of my articles, and I want to say that it means a lot to me that some of you are still choosing to do so, even in this time of economic uncertainty. Thank you all so much. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>